Old Testament lesson this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. The people saw that Moses was taking a long time to come down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come on, make us gods who can lead us. As for this man, Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't have a clue what has happened to him. Aaron said to them, All right, take out the gold rings from the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took out the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He collected them and tied them up in a cloth. Then he made a metal image of a bull calf, and the people declared, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf. Then Aaron announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. They got up early the next day and offered up entirely burned offerings and brought well-being sacrifices. The people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to celebrate. The Lord spoke to Moses, Hurry up and go down. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, are ruining everything. They have already abandoned the path that I commanded. They have made a metal bull calf for themselves. They've bowed down to it and offered sacrifices to it and declared, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've been watching these people, and I've seen how stubborn they are. Now leave me alone. Let my fury burn and devour them. Then I'll make a great nation out of you. But Moses pleaded with the Lord his God, Lord, why does your fury burn against your own people? whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and amazing force. Why should the Egyptians say he had an evil plan to take the people out and kill them in the mountains and so wipe them off the earth? Calm down your fierce anger. Change your mind about doing terrible things to your own people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you yourself promised. I'll make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky, and I've promised to give your descendants this whole land to possess for all time. Then the Lord changed his mind about the terrible things he said he would do to his people. The word of God for the people of God. God. Let us pray. Lord, send your spirit on us today as we hear your word, that it might speak to us powerfully of who you are and who you want us to be. In the name of Christ. Amen. Well, in order for us to dive into this text, we need a little bit of review to kind of catch you up on where we are in the story. If you remember last week, we talked about Passover, and we talked about the fact that this was the meal that signified Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt, and we talked about the fact that the communion meal then also reveals this even larger project that God has of delivering his people from slavery to sin and death. God's people are set free. And we talked about what they were set free from, but the question we want to wrestle with this week is, what are we set free for? What is our vocation that this freedom is designed for us to enjoy and to use and to to work for? Well, to do that, we have to go back a little bit further and remember the very beginning. Remember that in the beginning, God creates humanity and he gives them a mission. He says that that you will bear my image. 
and that you will be the stewards of my whole creation. Remember that creation is kind of like God creating a temple and that these humans are be, to be the priests in that temple to mediate between God and his creation, to represent God and his righteous rule over his creation. Then we went and talked about Abraham, Abraham being the one through whom God says all the nations of the earth will be blessed, blessed and set free. We talked about Joseph, who was the one who uh, came and was in Egypt, sold into slavery, but comes out of slavery and is able to preserve his family by forgiving them and bringing them down to Egypt. And then last week, of course, Moses and the Passover. And that great story that when the children of Israel leave Egypt, they escape through the Red Sea. What a powerful scene that is, you know, when they come to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, because Pharaoh changes his mind, the Egyptian army is bearing down on them, their backs are against the sea, and and they're crying out to Moses, what are we going to do? And God says, just wait, God's going to take care of us, and he does. And he splits the sea, and the Israelites walk across on dry ground, and the Egyptians try to follow them, and then the water comes in and takes out all the Egyptians. It's a powerful story. And it would be a, a great, great movie. Many movies have been made about it. But it would be an even greater movie if it ended there, right? With the Israelites on the other side, there in the desert, you know, the sun may be coming up, instituting a new day, that their future was bright and glorious and all of that. But that ain't how the story goes. In fact, when we get here to Exodus 32, we see that the Israelites are struggling with the idea of freedom. Moses has led them into the desert there to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on the mountain to speak with God. This is the covenant-making moment when God will give Moses the commandments, the boundaries and the ways that, that God's people are to be. But before that, listen to what God tells Moses to tell the Israelites. This is in Exodus chapter 19. God says to Israel through Moses, You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to me. So now if you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be my most precious possession out of all the peoples since the whole earth belongs to me. You will be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. These are the words you should say to the Israelites. Hear that again? A kingdom of priests. In other words, now you've been set free to be what I called you to be from the very beginning. To be that priestly role for God's creation. Well, then in chapter 20, they begin to hear the commandments. Actually, it's just Moses at this point who's up on the mountain, and God begins to give him the commandments. And that commandment giving goes on for like 12 chapters. It starts with the Ten Commandments, you know, here are the Ten Basic Commandments, but then God gives Moses all kinds of instructions about worship, about building the tabernacle, which will accompany the Israelites, and God's glory will rest there in the, in the tabernacle. And while all this is going on, God is talking on and on, and, and Moses is talking with them, you see that, that God and Moses kind of have this relationship. Actually, it goes back to early in Exodus when God first calls Moses out of the burning bush. I always love that story, too, because when God speaks to Moses, it's in a bush that is burning but is not consumed. Moses is tooling along. Remember, he escapes from Egypt and he becomes a shepherd. And he's wandering out there in the deserts of Midian, 
when he sees this sight, he says, I will turn aside and I will go see what this sight is, a bush that burns up, but it's not consumed. And so he goes over to the bush and then the bush talks to him and tells him to do something. Now, I don't know about you, if a bush burning in the middle of the desert is talking to me, I'm going to listen. Probably not going to ask a lot of questions. Especially when the first thing the bush says is, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. You got it, no problem. Whatever you say, I'm going to do. But notice that Moses pushes back at God. I want you to go to Egypt and set my people free. I'm going to use you to do that. Moses says, I don't think so. Um, See, I am not a good speaker. I don't have that skill set. You know, I am not the guy you're looking for. God says, yes, you will go and do that. No, I don't think so, God. You've got to get somebody else. And you can almost hear this pause of God in the bush. You just hear the crackling of the fire going, what do I do with him? And finally, God says, okay, take your brother with you. He can be your press secretary, your spokesperson, and speak for you. All right. But Moses is still not sure. In fact, there's a great little text there as Moses is on his way to Egypt with Aaron. There's a little text that says, and while he was on the way, God sought to kill him. That's how intense this relationship got. Moses is pushing back. But it's part of a long tradition. I mean, if you go back to the time of Abraham... We think of Abraham speaking to God. God speaks to Abraham and he takes off and leaves his family and and goes off to Canaan. But there's that other story when God talks to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, Abraham, you know about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? How wicked they are? I'm going to take them out. I'm going to smoke them and they will be wiped off the earth. And Abraham hears this and you would think that Abraham would go, cool, I can't wait to see what this looks like. I'm not seeing fire from heaven. That's a new thing. They deserve it after all. No. What does Abraham do? He says, hold on, God. That's not like you. What if, what if I can find 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Would you spare it? And God says, well, Abraham, because I like you. That's kind of the Hebrew. If I, li- I like you. And, and uh, okay, for 50, I'll hold off. So Abraham Instead of saying, good, he doubles down. How about 20? Okay, 20. Uh, How about 10? All right, for 10. How about one? Of course, the problem was that there wasn't one in Sodom and Gomorrah, and so God takes it out anyway. But but the point is that, maybe it's not the best illustration, but the point is that, that Abraham has this kind of relationship with God, this give and take, and God and Moses seem to have this kind of give and take. And so Moses, when they get to Mount Sinai, goes up on the mountain. And he's up there for 40 days. 40 days speaking with God. And they're having this marvelous conversation. God is giving him the law. This is how we put together the covenant people. But then at the end of the conversation, God says, I got to tell you something. There's a problem, and you need to go down and take care of it. These people whom you brought out of Egypt. Notice the language. Whom you brought out of Egypt are messing up already. I mean, I just gave you 10 commandments, the first two of which are, one, you shall have no other gods before me, and two, 
you shall not make unto me any graven image in the shape of an animal or anything so that you can worship it. And I've just given the, the tablets are still cooling off from where I wrote them in and they are already doing it. Go down there and take care of it. Actually, you know what? God says to, to Moses, leave me alone. I am furious and I am going to take them out. But as for you, I'm going to give you a deal. After I take them out, I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a deal. It's the same deal God gave Abraham, right? Same language. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And you have to think that Moses, for a moment, thought to himself, hmm, these people grumble all the time. They can't be trusted on their own. They're like, they're like petulant children who just want their way all the time. And you could see Moses, maybe his wheels turning a little bit up there. Like, maybe there is greener grass on the other side. Actually, here in the desert, any grass would be good at this point. And so, we wonder what will happen. Meanwhile, down below, people are dancing around a golden calf that they made. They're anxious because Moses is gone. Moses has been up on the mountain 40 days. And the problem is the people equate Moses with God. They equate the messenger with the message. So in their minds, when Moses is gone, God is gone too. Now in Egypt, they got used to the fact that the Egyptians made their gods into stone and wood and metal so that they can be seen and worshipped. Well, Moses is gone. We don't see this God. There's a cloud up on the mountain. And yes, he's led up like a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. Yes, he split the sea and all that kind of stuff. But, but we want a God we can put our hands on. In fact, we want a messenger who reflects this God. So Aaron, make us one. And Aaron, who was Moses' spokesperson, now left in charge of the Israelites, looks at them, this these faces of anxious people, and he says, okay, we'll make the God. See, Aaron's guilty of doing what a lot of leaders do when confronted with an overwhelming sense of the culture. If you want to survive, what do you do? You adapt. You give them what they want. It's the temptation of every leader. Give the people what they want. And so Aaron says, bring me all your gold. Now, where did they have gold from? They're slaves, right? Well, there's a little passage in Exodus where the Egyptians give them their gold before they leave. They're predisposed to the Israelites. They, they almost fear them in some ways. And so there's this great scene where they give the, the Israelites all of their gold and jewelry. And, and the Israelites have this gold and jewelry. They're out in the desert and they're free and they've got gold and jewelry. And Aaron says, bring it to me. And he takes it and he melts it down and he makes a calf. Why a calf? Well, in the ancient world, the calf, the bull, was a symbol of fertility. It was used in just about every culture around the Israelites. And so what they make is not so much a substitute for God, for Yahweh. I used to think that. You know, they're making just a substitute for, for Yahweh. Actually, if you read verse 5, it says that, that 
Aaron, after they made the calf, said the next day would be a festival to the Lord, to Yahweh. So they're still worshiping Yahweh, but what they've done is they've elevated a messenger to the same level as God and said, these are your gods. These are our gods that have led us out of Egypt. And Moses, we don't know what's happened to him, but now we have a tangible representative. Aaron, you're the man. You made it happen, baby. We're so excited. We're glad that you've done this for us. Let's party. And so they dance around the golden calf. And God is up on the mountain going, oh, Moses, if you could only see, if you only knew what was going on down there. Those people that you led out of Egypt, they are in deep trouble. We do this all the time, don't we? We get anxious. We forget that we have direct access to God. The Israelites had direct access to God, but they decide to put all of their capital around the messenger instead. We do this all the time. We do it with celebrity preachers. We do it with politicians. We may even do it with pastors. We say things like, man, if our pastor were to leave, we don't know what we would do. We would have to leave too. It all would be lost. Now, there is no subtext here where I'm telling you that I'm leaving. I'm not. Okay, I want to get that out of the way right now. I'm not leaving. But some people say, this is it. We, we have to keep this person here because this person is our conduit to God. This author is our conduit to God. This leader is our conduit to God. We've got to elevate them. And when they fall off the pedestal, then what happens? Well, we've got to go get another one. We forget that we have this direct access to God. The Israelites have God with them all the time, and they forget. They want to elevate the messenger. And it's tempting for those who are in leadership to give the people what they want, to say to them, yes, whatever it is that you need, like Aaron, I'll give it to you. I want to feel good. That golden calf thing is a temptation for every leader. You want people to like you. You want people to dance around you and, and celebrate. But it's a pathology. God sees it as being serious enough that he wants to take his people out of the picture altogether. Idolatry comes in many different forms. We idolize people. We idolize sex. We idolize wealth. We idolize power. And we wonder... What, what will save us? Sure, we trust in God. I mean, it's right there on the money, right? In God we trust. But we only trust in God if we have the money in hand, right? We need that kind of golden calf in order to hold on to. The problem is that those calves aren't real. Why does God say you shall have no other gods before me? Because in the end... There aren't any. There aren't any others. There's only one. I love what the choir sang this morning, a very Trinitarian hymn, the three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, relational, accessible, with his people all the time. We keep looking for gods that will replace or stand in for the God of the universe, and we struggle. That's what's going on here in the text. Aaron acts like the people that the leader wants, that, that, like the people want, 
Um, they idolize the messenger. And when we make the messenger, then we want the messenger to do what we want, right? When we are the ones who create it, when the messenger goes off script, we're not very excited about that. We have a lot of messengers, a lot of people vying to be the messenger for our culture. We have an election coming up. I don't know about you, but I am disturbed. Uh, there are lots of ways that we can make golden calves out of elected officials. What are we going to do with this? I had somebody text me the other day and say, you know, I, the ballot's coming and I don't know who I'm going to vote for. I can't stand either one of them. Can I get any man up in here? You know, I can't, I can't live. No. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do with this. And I said, you know, the, in the end, Christ is still Lord. He's still the king. We can't count on these idols. They're not going to save us one way or the other. We can dance around. We can hope. We can pray. Actually, we'll get to that in a little bit. But all this is happening down in the valley. They're dancing around the calf. God is saying, look at what they're doing. Your people, Moses, whom you led out of Egypt, are doing all this. I, you notice the, the, the subtext here? God says to Moses, you, your people, whom you led out of Egypt. It's like when parents say, when, when a kid does something well, they're my child. When they do something bad, they're your child. Hey, your people did this. How about you and I start over? Wouldn't you like to start over? Just like just chuck it all. And I'll have a great nation. But Moses isn't the kind of messenger that we normally look for. He's learned from his relationship with God, speaking with God face to face. And so Moses turns to God and he says this, starting at verse 11. I'm sorry, verse, yes. But Moses pleaded with the Lord his God, Lord, why does your fury burn against your own people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and amazing force? Notice how he turns the tables. Whom you brought out. Why should the Egyptians say he had an evil plan to take the people out and kill them in the mountains and so wipe them off the earth? Calm down your fierce anger. Change your mind about doing terrible things to your own people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you yourself promised. I'll make descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And I've promised to give your descendants this whole land to possess for all time. Notice what Moses does here. He reminds God of who he is. Hey, uh, remember that you are the one who brought them out of Egypt. Remember, when we were at the burning bush deal, you said you were going to do this. Now, you didn't send me back there to do this whole thing and go through all this to stop it. And then he says, secondly, remember your reputation. I mean, if you bring these people out here and you kill them off, what will the neighbors say? <laughs> what will Egypt say? What will Canaan say? Hey, you, you didn't do that. But lastly, he reminds God of the covenant. Remember that covenant you made with Abraham, with Isaac? with Jacob, Israel. That covenant where you were going to make your people as numerous as the stars in the sky, 
that you were going to set them free for this purpose of being the people through whom God's whole creation are going to be redeemed. Do you remember that, God? Hold back your anger. Don't do it. And the text says, amazingly, that God changed his mind about the terrible things he would do to his people. All because he knew Moses. Now, some would say that God was simply testing Moses here. He never intended to wipe out his people. But the text doesn't really say that. It says that because Moses pleaded for his people, God changed his mind and gave them another chance. Later on in the text, God says to Moses, hey, you know what? You can take these people forward, but I'm not going to go with you. Moses says, why bother to go then? If you're not going to go with us, we're lost. Talks him out of it again. God says to Moses, I don't know if I can forgive these people. Moses says to them, Lord, forgive them. And if you won't forgive them, take me instead. Moses acts like the real messenger. He knows he's not on equal plane with God. But he stands in the gap on behalf of his people. He delivers God's message to them, but he also stands before God on behalf of his people and pleads with God for his nation, his family, his people. It's an amazing thing to think about. Now, yes, Moses is angry at the people himself. Interestingly, right after this text where Moses pleads for his people, he goes back down the mountain He takes the tablets God gave him. When he sees the calf, which God has already told him about, he sees the calf, he throws down the the tablets, smashing them, and he takes the calf and he grinds it up into powder and he puts it in the water and he makes the Israelites drink it as a way of saying, this God is now nothing more than human waste. And then he says to the Levites, go through the camp and anyone who doesn't come to our side and follow the Lord our God, you put him to the sword. Now, that's more than God was going to do. But then at the end, Moses is back up on the mountain receiving the second set of tablets and says, God, forgive them, and if you won't forgive them, take me instead. He stands in the middle between God and his people. When I read that text, it struck me that so often we want messengers to tell us what we want to hear. And we'll get other ones when they stop telling us what we want to hear. But Moses isn't interested in that. Moses' primary relationship is with God. With God on behalf of his people and through his people for all of creation. He's the kind of messenger that stands in the gap. He acts in a priestly role they were created to have in the first place. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, God says that, that you are a priesthood, we are a priesthood. Moses acts like a priest on behalf of his people. And I read that text and it struck me as I read it. I was, I was working on this sermon several weeks ago and, um, and it still kind of 
rattling around in my brain because I've been studying the life of Moses because I realize I'm a lot like Moses. You know, the Moses, uh, when I was on retreat at Asbury a few weeks ago, I, I had one of my counseling friends, Tony Headley, said, he said that uh, it's no wonder you gravitate toward Moses because Moses is a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. That's how I am. He's a man of action. He wants to get things done. He wants to make it work all the time. Yes, he's going to push back a little bit. He's going to focus. He's going to grumble a little bit, but he's going to get it done one way or the other. But I read this text, and I was sitting at a table at a cabin up in the mountains, Ted and Jerry Jean Bauman's cabin. I was up there for three days just working on the text. No internet, which is a blessing, by the way, because you can really listen to God when you don't have internet. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But I'm reading this text, and I felt like God was saying to me, that's what I called you to, to stand in the gap. In fact, that's what I'm calling all my people to do right now, is to stand in the middle. Because you see, we live in a world where there are golden calves popping up every day. And people are dancing around them all the time. And it's easy to be the one who comes down from the mountain with the word. I mean, I, I do that. That's my job. Unlike Moses, I'm fairly good at speaking. You might debate that, but I feel like I am. And, and I, I can bring those words. I can speak it. I can do it on my own. I can do all of this ministry stuff on my own. You just do the stuff you're supposed to do. You can do it without God. I will tell you because I've done it. You can do it all. But eventually, the messenger gets ground into powder. God says, I'm not interested in that. What I want from you is your face. Because you see, the only way that we are going to change the course of this people Israel, the only way we're going to change the course of a nation, the only way we're going to change the course of our world is if God does it and if his people are willing to stand in the gap on its behalf. That's what I created you to be in the first place. I realize that I'm really good at bringing the word, but I'm not so good at standing in the gap on behalf of my people, my church, my family, my nation, my enemies, my world. And God says, all the stuff you're doing, great stuff, good, but I want your face. God spoke with Moses face to face. It wasn't like when Moses showed up, he said, okay, give me the prayers, here we go. He says, this is my friend. We sing a song in the 930 service, I am a friend of God. Wow. When Moses went into the tent of meeting to meet with God, when he came out, because he had been face to face with God, his face was shining. And it was shining so brightly, he had to wear a veil over it. God says, that's what I want you to be. I want you to be shining because you've been in my presence. Because you stood there in that gap on behalf of your people. That's not just for you. He says, this is for all of your people. Because we're all priests. Stand in the gap. What are we going to do about this election? Oh, what are we going to do? I don't know who to vote for. I can't vote for the two candidates are there. I don't know the third party people. They don't even know what they're about. I don't know what we're going to do. What should we do? And I said to someone, we should pray. And they said, that's not enough. 
I said, that's all we got. That's the most powerful thing we can possibly do. Stand in the gap. We got a denomination that's breaking apart. I was at a meeting on Friday in Chicago. 1,700 Orthodox United Methodists gathered together to say, we're going to be faithful to what God has called us to be. Powerful stuff. But what was the call? Not to go out and, and march and protest and bang away at the drum. The first call was, get on your knees and pray. Because only God is going to make this work. Only God can bring revival. And in every place in the world where there has been crisis like we are seeing now, crisis like we cannot imagine, when the people of God have decided to stand in the gap and pray, things begin to change. When we realize we can no longer do the change on our own with the ballot or the bullet or anything else, that's when God says, all right, now I will go to work. I believe God is calling us to a deep season of prayer, of standing in the gap on behalf of our community, our nation, our world, our church. And God says it starts with you because I'm the one that gave you the burning bush and put you in there in the first place. So that's my commitment. I went, at that moment when I was reading that text, and I felt God saying that in my spirit. It was like, it was like, it was like very convicting when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you. At Teddy, Ted and Jerry Jean's property, they have a huge uh, rock formation. It's really big. It looks like a mountain. And you have to climb up it. And so I felt God saying to me, go out there and climb up on there. I had Moses up here for 40 days. I want you up there for 40 minutes. The wind's blowing. It's like 30 degrees up there. It's freezing. I put on my coat. I hike out there. I climb up to the top. And I wait for the Shekinah glory of God to descend and God to speak with me face to face. Tell me what to do. That didn't happen. In fact, the only thing that was up there was three chipmunks. Little chipmunks. Cheep, 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 they would say. And every time they'd cheep, their little tails would flick up. Three of them running around there. That's all they did. That's all I saw. Then it occurred to me. Three chipmunks. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Maybe. I don't know. If they were, I didn't get that message. But what I heard was God saying, this is what I want. I want your face. I want you to be with me so that you shine. I want you to be up here on behalf of your people. And then you can speak the word because you and I are friends. I think that's the call for all of us. It's not just about those of us who wear the robe. I think God's calling us to a deep season of prayer. We're gonna talk more about that next week when we look at the story of Hannah praying so fervently for a son that she could dedicate to the Lord. She prayed so hard that people thought she was drunk. Can you imagine? We pray so hard to see God at work that people think we're crazy. That's what it means to stand in the gap. I love Moses. I hope you do too. Let's pray.
Lord, you've called us to be gap standers. It's not easy. We live in a world where golden calves are everywhere and, and we're tempted to worship them ourselves. But you've called us apart to spend time in your presence on behalf of your people, on behalf of our families, on behalf of our loved ones who may have strayed far away, on behalf of those who don't know you, on behalf of a nation that is seemingly ripping itself apart, on behalf of a world where there is terror and violence and brokenness. You've called us to stand in that place. May we be like Moses and call upon your mercy and your covenant that through us you might lead your people to a new promised land called your kingdom. Teach us how to pray fervently. In the name of Christ, amen.